Christmas and we've started a new series, a very short series on the incarnation, which I said, you know, the working title, maybe the, the technical title is Implications of the Incarnation of God Coming in Flesh. Uh, but really, I just want to talk about what's going on with Christmas. Like, why is Christmas, why should Christmas for us, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, why should that be such a big deal? How does it impact our everyday lives? But I want to start from a bit of a different angle today. Um, I do recognise that there's quite a bit of pain in our society at the moment. And, uh, and, you know, it's tempting in Christmas season to just go with the feel-good vibe. But today, I'm actually going to sail toward the storm a bit. I'm going to enter the pain a bit. Is that okay? Because yeah. I actually think that with a lot of people hurting in our society, I do think that it's important we just don't sort of try and gloss over uh, what's going on. For some people, not everyone, but for many people, you know, are really being forced to make huge decisions that is impacting their lives and careers. And for everyone who's spoken to me this week, after last week, I offered again to talk uh, to people. That offer remains open. Uh, thank you to those that spoke to me. That really gave me an insight into your world and some of the reasoning and some of the decisions you're making and how that's impacting your lives. Uh, so I sort of want to speak into that a bit as we go today because I do think uh, Christmas has something to say. The incarnation has something to say and speak into that. As soon as I get my notes to travel. Hey, there we go. There we go. Okay, and I'm going to read a bit today because... Um, why is that doing that? Sorry, you'll just have to excuse me. Um, I do want to read some of my notes because I really don't want to get lost on too much of this if I can. You know, 9-11 changed the world. I think we all know that. By 9-11, I mean the terrorist attacks in New York... And seeing airliners fly into skyscrapers, anyone who was around at that time, who was watching that, you would know what I'd say. It was absolutely, it was just unbelievable that this was happening and it's unfolding on our screens. And I'm sure, you know, even if you weren't around at that time or old enough to recognise it, I'm sure you've seen video footage. I'm sure, I, I tell you one thing, you've felt the impact of it because not only did it start in New York, but of course that led to the war on terror, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and those, um, you know, devolving into wars in northern Syria, the rise of ISIS, all of those things, which in, in one sense has been bookended a little bit of, with pain in our society. Um, you know, there's the associated and ongoing issues of post-traumatic stress and veteran suicide, all kinds of stuff. And then the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan and sort of the collapse of that nation going back under Taliban rule, there's a huge disillusionment. Talk about pain. That is pain. That is probably what we're talking about with uh, starting at 9-11 and everything that's gone through, probably the most significant events that several generations will be impacted by in our world ever will see unfold in their lifetime absolutely huge uh, I'd been in the senior leadership role here for less than two months when it happened uh, I hadn't even moved my young family in from crow's nest and uh, uh, you know all of this began to unfold and I was a pastor and I steered this church through that as well as I could as well as, in those same years, a global financial crisis, mass shootings, bushfires, floods in the same... all in the same years. And one thing it taught me, and that is that peace will not be found in this world. 
It'll only be found in Jesus Christ. If you're looking for this world to be an anchor to your soul, you'd better get ready to rock and roll, baby, because it's going to be one heck of a roller coaster. And that's why we need an anchor beyond the things of this world. Um, I can honestly say, though, when you look at that, such a world-changing event, forever changed the world, I can honestly say that the pain for the average person did not seem as intense and by the average person, I mean, we had people in the first service who had children serving overseas in some of those wars. And we had veterans from some of those wars in the early service, and we might have once again. So I'm, I'm just saying for the average person, if it didn't come, you know, and, and knock at your door necessarily, then that pain did not seem as intense, devastating, or immediately impacting as what I'm seeing with uh, people trying to deal with the vaccine and the vaccine mandate right now. As I said, thank you for speaking to me, but that pain, that pain of loss, loss of careers, loss of businesses is absolutely huge, huge. And I guess in the middle of all that, never have I felt the pressure to use or not use the pulpit to speak directly to an issue. I've had to wrestle with that. And, uh, and I've actually had people appeal to me to what I perceive weaponise the pulpit in this current debate, uh, which is something that I refuse to do and I, and I hope I can stick to my word. I never want to use... Because that's just using, you know, the, the Bible. It's using this forum for something other than preaching the gospel. I don't want to go there. I see pastors do it. I see pastors weaponise scripture. And, and barely a week goes by without me seeing some attempt to weaponize scripture, to wrestle it out of context, to patch together different verses, to somehow support a preconceived idea. And, and the fact is, you can find anything, any justification in the Bible you want. You can find any message you want. You just think of an idea, and if you look hard enough, you'll be able to cobble together something that supports your point of view. The problem is that's a really bad hermeneutic or a really bad way of interpreting Scripture. Yeah. Honestly, Scripture needs to teach us, not us use it. Yeah, that's right. We need to go with an open mind and go, what was being said to these people? And in that context, how does that now speak to me? So, for example, I, I, and, and often these preachers, I notice they're really critical of other preachers. So I'm going to have a little shot back. Uh, no, please. But I just, honestly, what I want to do is warn us warn us of stuff that can seem so right that is just so off the planet it's not funny and so just this week I saw one guy and he's like um you know the false shepherds in the church are using Romans 13 where Paul says to uh to submit to authority it's ordained by God okay and he said false teachers are using that to muzzle the church etc etc and we need to rise up because Paul was only talking about righteous government does that sound right? I mean, honest, this is not a trick question, but that sounds reasonably feasible, doesn't it? That we'd only submit to, to honourable and righteous and godly government? It sounds right to me. The only problem is, <laughs> Paul never lived a day of his life under righteous government. He was a Roman citizen in first century Roman Empire. He never lived a day under righteous government. So, I mean, I look at that and I think, man, you are just making the Bible say whatever you think it should say. Yeah, that's 
that supports your cause. And there's so much of it out there, and I've, I don't think I've ever seen so much rubbish that unfortunately is often embraced by members of this congregation. So right now, I just want to extend my offer, not just to talk to you if you're in pain because you're losing employment through this season, but if you really are getting hammered with scriptures and you don't know what to answer and you're really fearful, you know, people are using scripture to generate fear, that should tell you straight away that it's wrong. Yeah. Scripture's not there to scare us, it's there to edify us. Cool. So, but, but I'm more than open to sit and discuss with you. And I'm more than open to learn too. I mean, I haven't yet come across any valid piece of scripture that's being used to cause fear in people yet. That hasn't been wrestled totally out of its own context. But I'm willing to discover some. So this is such an unusual season, such a crazy season. And the pain for people is really intense. And I, I had to ask myself the question, why is this so intense? I've lived through some far bigger world events than this. Even though it's massive, but why? It's because it's near. It's one thing for an atomic bomb to go off on the other side of the world. It's another thing for a 100-pound bomb to go off in your driveway. <laughs> Over there, it's bad news for a lot of people. Right here, it's really bad news for me. And it really does affect us. And that's appropriate. That probably is a fear, flight, and fight response. That's a survival instinct. The closer danger gets, then, uh, the more concerned we can be. And really, I mean, I, I think it's amazing um, that when something comes near, it's more urgent. When you look at it, I mean, passenger jets flying into skyscrapers, a vaccine that I'm not confident with. To me, as much as I'm not trying to push a point either way here, I'm, I'm just saying, why would this shake our world more than that? Again, it's just the nearness of the perceived threat. So let's get to the message now that I've set it up, and I, will, I did say that for a reason, and uh, we'll circle back to it. What's going on with Christmas? Isaiah 9, 6, we read last week, for unto us a child is born who is mighty God amongst other things. This is what we call the incarnation. Um, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. The word that God spoke at creation, John was relating to. And we understand that Incarnation, to know what that word means, it is simply an ancient understanding is the act of being made flesh. A more modern version is a person or thing that is the embodiment of something. And so when we talk about the incarnation, it's not a word in scripture, it's a word that theologians use to explain what happened, that God became flesh. So literally incarnated in Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at the implications of that. Because the implication is, as Jesus was, so are we in the world. The implications are, is not only did God want to incarnate himself in Christ, but now Jesus wants to incarnate himself in us, so that we become God's hands and feet, so that we, we flesh out what it is to be godly. It's not that we're little gods, but we are representatives of God. Our lives point to him. And the first level we looked at was humility last week. 
in humility. And I guess I contrasted last week that in this current environment, you know, there's, there's not a great deal of humility. There's a lot of drawing lines. There's a lot of digging in on trenches, but humility is something that might help people to find their way forward graciously. I hope that's what the message was last week. And then, of course, I looked at that great passage in Philippians chapter 2, which is the Apostle Paul explaining what actually happened for God to become flesh. And this is his, uh, it's, a, it's a huge and famous passage, a, a central passage to understanding uh, the incarnation. And uh, I'm just going to read from verse 5, like I did last week. You okay for, you up for a bit of scripture today? Yes. Good, okay. So, in your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That Greek word we looked at last week, kenosis. He made himself nothing. In other words, or kenosis simply means to empty of self. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As I noted last week, I just want to remind us the whole context of this passage, which is like intensely theological, okay, an intensely theological passage, but the whole context is actually our human relationships. This is not like a, a, a big theological concept that's just suspended out there, not connected to anything. Paul connects it directly to how we treat one another. So before he starts to teach on what actually happened with the incarnation, he actually pulls us in in the first, not just that verse, but the, next, the first four verses. So the first five verses of that chapter are all about context. It's all about how we treat one another, how we live with one another, how we are in the world and how we act and how we think. And then he points us to Jesus and says, this is exactly how you're meant to be have this mindset, who, even though he had everything, was prepared to empty himself of all on behalf of others. The humility of becoming a human being, but not only that, the humility of serving another human being. And Jesus then displays it himself when he does things such as, girds himself with the towel and washes his disciples' feet. The one exalted from beginning, from the beginning, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All things are created through Him, and through Him all things exist. The one who had everything, made everything, and everything was made for. This is the, this is the kenosis, the self-emptying. I will not use that to leverage myself a better position. I will not use it for opportunity but I will actually empty what I do have for the sake of others. And we call it the humility of Christ. The cross is the humility. 
humiliation, the, the hum, humiliation. Whew. Wow, is the humiliation. Um, but this is the humility of Christ. And, uh, and we do need to understand, he didn't shed divinity, but added humanity. That's, that's clumsy theology, but a simple handle for the correct term, which is hypostatic union. In other words, he didn't become any less God, he just laid aside how he could use it. And is found in appearance as man, but 100% God, 100% man at the same time. And therefore, he could be an appropriate intercessor between God and man. It says, he made himself nothing, took on the very nature of a servant. And then he was exalted over all. Christ was exalted by serving. He actually became, if I could put it this way, the poster child for the human race by serving. It was in his service and in his humility that God lifted him up. And in exactly the same way, if we are to incarnate Christ, we are to follow those steps. So different, contrary to the spirit of our age and the spirit of our world, which is always urging us to reach out and take for ourselves. And so... uh, I want to look at Jesus talking about service now, and this is a passage that we've read many times, and I've explained it, but I do want to just revisit it. And it says, Mark chapter, it's in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, his disciples, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, they wanted the best seats in the house. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink, be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said, you will indeed. And we do know that they did. James was put to death by the sword by Herod. We know John was, well, we, we don't know, but church, church, um, uh, history or, or church uh, tradition is what I was looking for would say that he was boiled in oil when he survived that he was banished to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation so they were going to go through their own trials like Jesus did um, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom it's been prepared Now, when the ten, that's the other ten disciples, when they heard about it, they became indignant with James and John. In other words, fancy you getting in first. That's all it was. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't you don't have the right attitude. It would have been you beat me to the punch. And so they're indignant. So Jesus teaches them all. He calls them together and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, those outside of covenant with God, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then he says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as I've often said, you know, Jesus is not rebuking them for wanting to be great. I think God's put it in every heart, human heart to be great. We want our life. Come on. Who, who here wants to suck air and die? 
No one. We all want our lives to mean something and to be meaningful. Greatness in the human heart is something that God has put in each and every one of us. The problem is we, in our own humanity and according to the spirit of the age we live in, we are tempted to do it the wrong way. We're tempted to be subversive. We're tempted to try and beat, get in ahead of the pack, just like James and John were trying to do. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for it. He just shows them the correct way. And the interesting thing is, he finishes that with saying, but even the Son of Man, even God in flesh, did not come to be served. I mean, if there was anyone worth serving, it was Jesus, wasn't it? But to serve and to give his whole life so that others might live. Give his life as a ransom. And, And this is like just showing you again that whole kenosis, that self-emptying, there it is again. And it's all through Jesus' ministry, exactly who he was, exactly what he was trying to do, and exactly what he's urging us to you to do. Because he's urging them, if you want to be great, then be exactly like me. He's not saying, do as I say, but don't do as I do. (laughs) He's saying, do exactly as I do. That's the way to greatness. And so he's actually asking them to model their lives on his incarnation. As I've incarnated God to you so that you know who God finally is. You really see him clearly. You've looked at me. You've seen the Father. Then I'm asking you to allow the life of Christ to dwell in your flesh For you to live and to think in such a way that when people look at you, they see me. So he's pointing the disciples towards incarnating. The incarnation at Christmas time, it's got this way bigger impact than the fact that, ooh, God with us. It's, ooh, God in us. God in us and us in the world being as God's hands and feet. And so... How crazy would it be in the middle of all this social angst that's happening at the moment that the coming near of the Son of God, the coming near, you know, I said things impact us because they come near. Pain impacts us because it comes near. How ironic if because of the other pain, the coming near of the Son of God that we celebrate at Christmas time actually plays second fiddle to concern for ourselves. And I wonder, could it be that we've lived so affluent for so long that we're being so impacted? I mean, honestly, whether you use it or not, come on, folks, Uber Eats. You want to talk about affluence? You can sit on your couch, not even get off your bottom and push a few buttons on your $1,000-plus phone and have someone cook your dinner and bring it to your door (laughs) in a neat little paper packet. We talk about affluence. That is something that the great bulk of humanity alive at the moment know nothing of. We think the whole world's living like that. Folks, it's not. And could it be? that we're so comfortable, so secure, for so long, 
that we really begin to believe the lie that this whole thing, life as we know it, is about us. Could it be that this season is revealing a deception that's been growing for a long time? And right now, I'm not talking about government conspiracy. I'm sure there are some. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure people do bad things everywhere because people are people and it's the human race. Welcome to a broken planet. Stop talking about it like it's never happened before. But I just wonder... I just wonder whether we've just become so self-centric in our thinking. The deception is self-centric thinking. What I mean by that is that this whole world revolves around me. I'm not part of the world. This world's here for me. You just have to get really, really sick to realise that's not true. And we do think this way naturally. Hey, we we all think this way. When I was 19, I I was a rev head. And I tell you what, I did not like the traffic police. (laughs) Now, if you're one of our serving members of the police force, you're very welcome, except that I love you to bits now, okay? Let me finish the story. But I did not like traffic police. Any other young rev heads didn't like the traffic police? It was always like, oh, yeah, look at them bludgers, what they're doing. They're just picking on us. And then I turned 26 and had a child and realised that my wife was on the same streets with my baby in the car. And you can ask Sue, the radical change in me instantly. I'd see the blue lights come on and some young fellow with wide wheels getting pulled over and I'd be like, yeah, book him, Dano. Book him, book him, book him. Crush his car, get him off the road. It's just amazing how self-centric we can become. How something impacts us or benefits us totally changes our perspective. When it threatens, it's negative. When it benefits, it's positive. And right now, we've got stuff in, in our society like terms like the greater good. And, and I know some people have tried to weaponize it, but honestly, when you get criticized for, for appealing to the greater good, that's a real concern for our society. That's a real concern that our society is so self centric in its thinking that it cannot think. I wonder, I, and I just wonder if we've been fed so long a steady diet of self, me and what's best for I in our consumeristic society that we're no longer interested in being our brother's keeper. You know, that, answers, that question's answered, by the way, in, uh, in the very passage it's in. It's the story of Cain and Abel where Cain, after killing his brother, says to God, am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> well, the answer's from a murderer. So I figure we've got what not to do are you your brother's keeper yes we are but we have to be so careful in in a society where we've been groomed to think this big to forget that we're responsible this generation of Christians is responsible for this world and for caring for it and the people within it It's ironic that we have pink bow tie days in our society and Movember and Are You Okay Day? Because in some way, we've recognised the centrality of this ancient principle. They are fantastic things. And it's just ironic that we recognise that, 
But with the, the vitriolic rhetoric and hyperbole and insults that have divided our nation over vaccines, lockdowns, mandates, that's just crazy. It's just like a dichotomy. So we need to support one another. Then we'll tear one another apart. I want to keep you alive just long enough so I can kill you when you disagree. It should help us to understand once again just how incapable humankind is to centre itself morally. Humanism is a lie. The lie that man can sort it out. That left to himself, man will get better. It's never worked and it never will. The lie that man is ground of being. I am centric, I am the centre and everything revolves around me is an absolute lie. That's what makes the incarnation such fantastic news. That's what makes the incarnation something we have to embrace because we bring Christ back to the centre of our lives. As we incarnate him, he becomes the centre and we understand that we are here for this world. Wow, the implications of the incarnation. And if we could just manage to incarnate him, to allow him to occupy our flesh, our lives, how much different would this world be? I got the feeling it was God's plan all along. And Jesus said he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can I just say, those of you who serve people, love people, so many of you, thank you. That's awesome. What you're actually doing is incarnating Christ. Whatever you're doing out there in the community, within the walls of the church, wherever it is, you're actually incarnating Christ on some level. I've actually met with with some professionals that have really been torn about this whole issue and I've, I've said there's one thing that we've all got to ask in this and that is am I called because am I called what do I have to do to stay engaged with the gift God's given me if you're not serving giving your life away Can I encourage you, if that's not yet your experience, can I encourage you, let Jesus move you with love for others. More than external fears and uncertainty and all of that, let the love of Christ move you. Let him incarnate his compassion for others in you. I'm nearly out of time, but not quite. I just want to share one more scripture with you, okay? How you doing? You doing all right? Tell you what, this message is better than the first service. I think this is two in a row you guys have done better. Go 10 o'clock service. Who says, who says it doesn't pay to sleep in? Okay. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says, and this is really a picture of Christian community, according to the writer of Hebrews. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a few things that he says here. The first one is our confession is hope. 
this hope we profess, that should be our confession. Through all of the mud and the mire and the muck that's going on right now, honestly, as Christians, if the world acts and speaks as if it's got no hope, I understand. I can understand. Because if you don't have an anchor for your soul, I understand why you're shaken. But for us, you know... 2017, two weeks after we moved into this building, had the first service in this building, I was in a working bee out the front, had a heart attack. Two days later, I'm on an operating table being told that one in 100,000 people never get off the table. One in 10,000 people live with debilitating, major debilitating issues. And you know, in those doctors' consultations, as all this is unfolding, I'm trying to grasp my new reality. One thing that overwhelmingly, when I look back on the darkest days of my life at that point, when I look back, one thing stands out, and that was, I was just amazed when I turned away from my circumstances and looked back to Jesus. I actually, I found faith for that moment that was a different kind of faith than I'd ever exercised in my life. Before that, all the faith I'd exercised in my life seemed to be to step out in faith, to move forward, to do something, to take on something, looking for a miracle. That moment, I actually found faith to be at peace with death. I actually could honestly say, I don't want to go. I know my family will miss me, or at least I hope they do. (laughs) But if this was it for me, I'm actually okay with that. Because I've had a fantastic life from a young guy that was just so lost and so messed up at 21 years of age. The last 36 years of age, 36 years of my life have been a dream beyond compare. To have the family I have, to have the people around me in my life that I have. And I, had, I can honestly say, and I preached on it the week after my heart attack. I, stood, I sat up here and I told you guys about it, for those of you who are around. And I talked about faith for the darkest days, faith for the trial, faith, faith not to live but to die. Jesus is real. His hope is real. In the midst of all this, and as bad as it might be, our confession is hope. Our confession is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter how my external circumstances change, I've anchored my heart to him and I will trust him till that final day. Our focus is motivating each other to be our best. Stir one another up to love and good works. Our practice is community. Don't give up meeting together. You know, that's probably one of the great threats. We've already seen it. One of the great threats coming out of this COVID season as people go, you know what? I didn't really miss it. (laughs) That's just self-centric thinking. That's believing the lie. That's believing it actually all revolves around me because we actually need one another and we need to serve one another. We need to stir one another up to faith and good works. We need to encourage one another that our confession is hope. I'm not getting enough amens. Our passion is encouragement. Encouraging one another all the more 
as you see the day approaching. Hey, I'll tell you one thing that is true for every one of us, none of us want to face right now. This morning when you woke up, you were one day closer to that final day. <laughs> He's saying, encourage one another as the day's approaching. Well, I guarantee you, at 57, I'm closer than what I was at 21. Whether that's Jesus coming back and unzipping the sky or whether that's me going to meet him, either way, I'm a day closer. And what the writer of Hebrews says, hey, you've got hope as a confession. You're spurring one another on to good works. Keep meeting together. Keep that fire hot and encourage one another even more the closer it gets. You know what? The older we get, the more excited we should be. And the only reason we wouldn't be is because we're clinging on to this physical life that we have, whereas the early church, under horrific persecution, their prayer was, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. See, you, you want to be rescued from difficult circumstances, but you don't want to be rescued from affluence. And there's a huge danger in that because, again, our world becomes, yet Jesus came, though he had everything, emptied himself took on the form of a man not only that took on the form of a servant and eventually gave his life away for others and he said that is greatness and he invites us to walk in his footsteps that's the power of the incarnation that's the implication of the incarnation in these moments So just a couple of questions. Can I identify consistent opportunities I take to serve others with no benefit to myself? Where we serve for no benefit, just for for others. Just like Jesus did. But ultimately, Jesus did not get showered with gifts and rose petals for serving humanity. He was crucified for it. Where do I give myself away? Do my words serve others or myself? Because every tongue has a master. So who's mastering my tongue? Particularly right now where the world, when the world needs hope and our confession is hope, who's mastering my tongue? And can I say with confidence that I practice the principle of being my brother's or my sister's keeper? If so, where and when? Where am I actually looking out for those around me? And and I know the bulk of us are doing all of this. But this is the implication of the incarnation. We are called to be as he was in this world. Emptied himself and gave his life away for others. And it's a timely reminder in this season where everything is screaming at us to hunker down, shelter in place and draw a little circle around your world. That, that is the feel right now. And Jesus is saying, now open up, give your life away. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, help us just to process what it means to follow in Christ's footsteps. We, we can say that so easily. We can, it's a good catchphrase, but what it really means, help us to understand what it means 
right now today in our families, in our work situations, our school and education situations, wherever we find ourselves, help us to embrace the implications of the incarnation, to allow Jesus to manifest himself in and through us in the way that we think and the way that we speak and the way that we act. If that's your prayer too, would you just say amen with me? Amen. Hey, um, if you're on a journey, like I said earlier, with Jesus, maybe you haven't got to that point of really surrendering to him, you can do that right now, closing moments of this service, in the simplest of ways. If you're just ready to open your heart to Jesus, you might not know what it's all about. That's okay. At 21 years of age, I had no clue what it was about. I just had a conviction that I knew I needed him. And you might be here feeling that same sense of inner conviction. I just encourage you right where you stand, open your heart, just say yes to Jesus. Just allow him into your life. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. I do surrender to you. Yes, Jesus. I do want you as part of my life. Come in and help me. That's a great prayer to pray. Michael, let you know how you can follow up on it. Can we thank Pastor Chris?